global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes, while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase. All the while, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. Jack Hedge is the executive director of the Utah Inland Port Authority. He was previously the director of cargo and industrial real estate for the Port of Los Angeles and the director of real estate and asset management for the Port of Tacoma. Jack, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Well, thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, Jack, we're going to talk about this later, but I, I was thinking that a an inland port sounds a little bit like a flightless bird. So you have to make sure you come back to that and, and make sure you give me a, a satisfactory answer, all right? But we'll, we'll get to it. First, let's start with your background, though. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this field of international trade and logistics, where you grew up, what what kind of led you to this path? Yeah, sure. And it really was a, uh, a fortuitous accident that I wound up in this. I was actually in the energy business and um, um, had the opportunity to uh, work a little bit in consulting for the Port of Tacoma, uh, acquiring some property to build a new terminal. Uh, had never really been in the field of logistics before that, and uh, that led me that led me into it. And you know, as I told a, f- a friend of mine at the time, it was really cool. It was a total change of pace, and really cool. It was like a being in a giant sandbox. You got to play with big trains and big trucks and big ships, and uh, uh, I literally was like a kid in a candy store. And so you started out in Texas, right? You're, you're from Texas. Yep. I, I grew up in Texas, went to Texas A&M, and like I said, was in real estate and, and energy uh, development uh, prior to joining the ports. Spent some time building projects uh, around, the, around the country, around the world, uh, got into project finance and structured finance. And so that background really does, I think, serve me well in this role. Uh, but it was a, a completely different shift of, of business moving from Texas, moving to the Seattle area, uh, and they're getting involved in, in logistics and goods movement at the Port of Tacoma. And how prevalent are energy jobs in Texas? I haven't been to Texas. I have friends from Texas, <laughs> and I think I think that it's a big deal. But can you tell us a little bit more about that? I'm very curious. Yeah, in fact, I think it's a state law that you have to have an oil well. I think that's part of the deal. Uh, No, it's very prevalent, right? It's it's sort of the backbone of the Texas economy. At least it certainly was at the time that I was there and the time that I was growing up. Uh, And Texas still is sort of the the, the heart of the energy economy in in the United States and and around the world. Um, It is a, a vitally important piece of the state economy and of our nation's economy. And uh, uh, moving that product, uh, producing the product, moving the product, uh, is, is it's a probably one of the major employers to this day in Texas and those other big energy states uh, along the Texas Gulf Coast or along the Gulf Coast. 
Jack, one of the things I do at Harris Bricken is customs work, and that involves working with CBP both at the port of LA and, and the port of, of Tacoma and other ports as well. But but those um, but LA uh, and to a slightly lesser extent, Seattle, Tacoma are are really are, are just ports that are always uh, in our in our radar because of the work we do. I'd, I'd like I'd love to hear your perspectives on on what it's like to uh, to, to work at, at at these places. What's the um, perhaps you could you could contrast what what the what, what the port uh, of LA Long Beach is as opposed to 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 Seattle Tacoma. I, I just love to hear your your comparisons on on the two between the two and and perhaps also to to other ports uh, around the country. Uh, what, what are your perspectives on on that? Yeah, you know, it's 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 really interesting. And in, in some ways, they're very, very similar. And in some ways, the differences are like night and day. Um, the, the biggest difference probably between the ports of LA Long Beach and really any other port complex in North America is just the sheer scale, the sheer size. Um, that Those combined ports, that San Pedro Bay complex, um, in this past calendar year, handled over 20 million containers of, of uh, 20 million TEUs of, of containerized goods. Uh, that dwarfs the next largest uh, complex on the on the in North America, which is New York, New Jersey, which handled about 6 million contain, uh, TEUs. So it's the scale of, of, of goods moving through the LA Long Beach port complex is absolutely staggering. And uh, I was down there actually over the weekend, last weekend, and drove through the port complex. And I've never seen so many containers stacked so high. The trains moving in and out, the trucks lined up to, to pick up goods uh, that, that move through. Those containerized ports really do handle, those containerized goods that go through those ports really do represent the lifeblood of our economy. And uh, uh, the, if, if, if that is the case, then the beating heart of our economy is, is uh, the port complex of LA Long Beach. Um, ports like Seattle, Tacoma are, are critically important to those local uh, economies, those local regional economies. Um, and the port particularly of, of Seattle, Tacoma serves imports for kind of that market in that area. But a, a significant amount of goods move through those ports onto uh, the upper Ohio River Valley via Chicago. Uh, it's, and it's really interesting how goods move through those gateways and across the, the nation uh, to get to those markets um, you know, wherever they need to go. And as well as you know, the, the exports from our country that go overseas, the, the role that the ports play in doing that. And you know, Seattle-Tacoma, uh, Oakland are hugely important when it comes to, you know, U.S. agricultural products exporting to, to other markets and, and, you know, really representing that the, the, the heartland of the United States in terms of our agricultural goods going, going overseas. So it really is a, a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating industry. Ports themselves are incredible ecosystems, um, but the sheer size and scale of something like LA Long Beach is, is really something that needs to be seen to be appreciated. Well, on that note, there's a, a couple of uh, YouTube channels that I that I follow that for 
for different reasons have have been highlighting the, the large number of, of, of ships that are anchored off, off uh, the California coast. There's, there's one guy in particular who uh, doesn't really talk about about um, shipping, but he he's based in that area. So very often he'll go down to the beach, and you, you can you know, when he when he um, films himself, you can you can see the 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 vessels in, in the background, and that. And that um, I, I guess we can't we cannot talk about this topic without without asking mm-hmm. the question: um, What is happening? What, what what this this craziness that that we are experiencing with shipping costs having skyrocketed? Uh, how did we get here? What what's happening? What's your perspective on 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 why this is happening? Because you ask different people, and you get different uh, answers, not necessarily contradictory ones, but, but different folks tend to focus on different aspects of, of what's happening. And you, you hear all, all, all sorts of explanations and, and factors, but, but what's your own take on this? Well, I think it is, um, we, we have just absolutely overwhelmed the, uh, the logistics and goods movement system, particularly at our coastal ports, uh, with the, the uptick in, in, in volume that our consumer economy is, is driving. Um, you know, we, we didn't get here overnight. Um, we, you know, we've spent the last 30 years, uh, shifting our, our manufacturing, our goods, uh, production overseas. And, um, and now we're, we're, and, and, and in doing so, we built this just in time model of, of, of shipping. When the pandemic hit, we we exponentially increased the amount of goods that we ordered uh, from those foreign producers, those those foreign production centers, and uh, and, and for another number of factors. But because we we're a just in time system, we always sort of ran right at that ragged edge, right at that incremental edge of efficiency in terms of moving the goods over here and getting them to the store shelves in time, or getting them into the uh, the factory's production uh, inventory just in time. And when the pandemic first hit and factories closed in, in China and in Vietnam and in India and other places like that, all of a sudden we couldn't get the goods that we needed. So buyers responded with, well, I can't be, I can't be caught again without inventory. So I'm going to buy more stuff um, just in case something like this happens again. At the same time, we all went home, started shopping online, and that shift in in the mode of how we got our retail goods, we went from going to the store, uh, the mall, or whatever, and went to online and saying, get it to me in two days. So that meant more stuff had to be in more places so you could get your tennis shoes in two days. Um, That exacerbated that just-in-case um, shift in, in buying from the, from the producer side. So we've gone from a, a, a just in time model to a just in case model. And unfortunately we didn't have time to upsize our truck fleets, upsize our, our, uh, warehousing inventory, upsize our rail capacity, add more workers on the docks, add more workers in the, in the warehouses. We just simply overwhelmed the system and it's going to take a while to work through that. Um, 
and everyone is really working hard. I mean, think about this. The, the, I, that, that I mentioned earlier that 20 million TEUs ran through the ports of LA Long Beach in the last year. The previous high was about 16 million TEUs. So in one year, we jumped, what is that, 24%, something like that in, in one year. And yet the workers at the docks processed that, that huge increase in volume through those ports. So everybody's working hard. Nobody's taking a day off. Nobody's, uh, nobody's sloughing off. We've just got to start to use the entirety of the network, the entirety of our system much more efficiently and much more effectively than it's being used today. And that's where things like an inland port come into play. So Jack, of course, the next question is after we look at the ports, how do we get the goods to the ports? Fred was talking about these lines of, of shipping containers on these ships waiting off the coast of California. Can you tell us a little bit more about the state of international shipping companies? How many are there? What are they doing? Uh, how, are they are they doing their job the right way? Are they are they bilking us? I mean, what's going on behind the scenes? Well, there's been a, a, a massive consolidation of the international um, uh, ocean carriers over the past decade or so. Um, I, when I first got into the into this this business in the in the mid to late 2000s, there were something like 24 different carriers that that serve uh, the Trans Pacific trade, serve the U.S. in the Trans Pacific trade. It's down to like eight now that are you know major carriers that are serving it. So there's been a lot of consolidation in in that market in that industry, and the way their 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 um, contracts are structured really does incentivize them to bring goods to us, not to take goods back away from us. Those incentives have sort of led to, uh, have, have contributed to where we are today. So we need to be re- looking at how we restructure our contracts and how we uh, demand performance for certain things in those regards. But that's a, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Uh, the reality is uh, we've got more demand than we have supply right now. And that we know what kind of pressures that puts on pricing. So I don't, I don't know that they are gouging us per se. I think they are, they are trying to determine what price the market will bear. And for a critical good in a critical time, uh, the market will bear a fairly heavy price. I think we'll see rates settle back down a little bit. I don't know that we're going to work through congestioning time soon. But I do think we're seeing rates settle back down a bit as the market sorts of sort of uh, self-assesses and reassesses what the, the appropriate uh, level of, of, of cost is for moving goods from China to, to the U.S. At that, you know, we get to that diminishing return and, and you go find yourself another place to, to buy your goods. And I think that's that's what we're starting to see. Um, so I think there, there are a lot of things like that that are starting to happen. But I don't think we will ever go back to the rates that we saw two years, three years ago. Um, I think those days are long gone. They were fighting over market share at that time. They were giving it away. I don't think we'll see anything near that level of rate again. Um, we're going to see these higher rates, um, not the peak rates that we saw, but we're certainly going to see higher rates than, we used, than we're used to seeing in the past. That's the new normal. Off the top of your head and off the top of my head, all I know is that there are some Chinese companies involved in those eight existing companies that control all the 
all the Trans-Pacific shipping. Do you know any other countries? Uh, does the U.S. have any con- any companies in the mix, or is it all outside the U.S.? It's pretty much all outside the U.S. There are U.S. flag carriers, but they don't really operate in the Trans-Pacific trade. Uh, there's one, Matson, that runs one vessel uh, to and from China to the to the U.S. West Coast, and that's it. And it's a fairly small vessel. I mean, the the Trans-Pacific trade is dominated by foreign carriers. Uh, the Chinese carriers uh, have about 23 to 25% of the market, and then everybody else uh, eats up the rest of it. Uh, you have uh, you know, European carriers. We have um, a couple of other Asian carriers, uh, Korea, Japan, and the like. But primarily, it is, it is China uh, that dominates that market and, uh, and, and will continue to do so. So what options do companies have in negotiating with the carriers then if we've only got a limited number? Yeah, they have a lot of market power and and we don't have as much market power. I, I do believe there is a role for the federal government to play in sort of ensuring that there is a, I don't want to call it a level playing field, I don't think it's the right term, but ensuring that there is transparency to rates, that there is uh, performance measures and metrics that carriers have to adhere to if they want to call on this market, if they want to serve this market. Um, I think there, there's a role there to play to make sure that those charges and those influences are fair and don't unduly burden uh, U.S. companies, U.S. manufacturers, and the U.S. consumer uh, with, uh, with high rates simply because you can charge a high rate. Uh, we, regulation in and of itself isn't always a bad thing. And I think we need to be thinking about what those uh, pragmatic and helpful regulations look like. So Jack, earlier you talked about the role that inland ports can play in addressing some of the issues that, that we are, we are facing. Um, I'd like to talk about that, but I think a, a threshold question is what exactly is an inland port? I mean, as, as, as Jonathan pointed out, I mean, they're, it does seem like a bit like a bit of an oxymoron. Um, although some others might say, "Well, is that, is that some sort of um, river port?" Right? There's there's uh, some potential there for for confusion. So why don't we set the stage for this part of the conversation by by defining what a what an inland port is? Well, yeah. So it, and coming at this, I guess from a coastal port perspective, to me, an inland port is is an area that actually serves as uh, the backland support area for in support of coastal ports, uh, where you can do some of the processing, some of the handling um, further inland, where it's more efficient, where you have room to move, where it's more cost effective to do so than maybe at the coast. And that is, I think, the real benefit of an inland port. And you see that all over the all over the world. You see it in Europe. Inland ports are used a lot more in Europe. Um, a lot more in Asia. They haven't been such a big thing in the U.S., although on the East Coast, you see them a bit more. Places like Greer, South Carolina, and, and in Virginia, uh, and in Georgia, where, where inland ports have been a place to move goods rapidly off the dock, take them inland, sort them there, transload them there, div- you know, and, and load other things back on them, and then move them back to the ports. So that the coastal port really just becomes a place to load and offload ships. 
right now the way we've the way we've grown ad hoc over the last few decades all of that sort of processing and 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 handling and and capacity has taken place in or near the coastal ports and so by establishing the inland port here what we're doing is is saying to the ports and the and the and the steamship lines and the and the other carriers in the in the in, in the market move those goods inland use the coastal ports for what they're best at do this other work inland where it's probably better suited to do it here so could we talk a little bit about what that processing might might look like um i'm thinking at it from a from a custom slot perspective right that that's uh one example of the kind of processing that that you could do um and and, and in fact um is is done right you you mm-hmm. you 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 um unload at a at a coastal port like seattle put it on uh, on a train as you were as you were describing earlier um and then handle customs clearance elsewhere, and, and there's a variety of, of benefits, right? In, in addition to, to the logistics uh, aspect of it, there there might be other other benefits, right? In terms of what your date of entry is, et cetera. But what are some of the other things that that can be done, and and specifically, what are some of the things that that could be done more more efficiently? I mean, is is um is part of the driver for this a, a matter of of space because for example, when when you look at um, even the large ports uh, such as LA, I mean, ultimately there there is a, a limited limited physical space. So is is that a big part of it? The ability to utilize space more more efficiently. Yeah, I think that's that's it. I think a big part of it is that constraint around the the coastal port. There is no more land available. Uh, they are constrained, and as ships get bigger and as more goods continue to come in. You've got to be able to use that real estate that you do have available at the ports more efficiently and more effectively around what they are programmed for. And that really is loading and offloading ships. So taking all those other things that have to be done, putting trains together, blocking blocking trains for inland destinations, um, transloading cargo from the ocean box into an over-the-road trailer. Um, doing foreign trade zone work where you're combining components perhaps into a, a new package, a new uh, or, or, or assembly uh, opportunity, and do, even doing the customs inspection work that you talked about. Those are all things that arguably don't need to be done at the coast. And moving those things inland, you have more room to do them. You have room to grow them over time as volumes continue to grow. You have better ability to manage the flow of cargo, to stage cargo, to uh, to deploy it and meter it back into the ports as it, as it comes back in. Having the having that inland facility, that inland backland area to do that work, affords an awful lot of efficiency to the coastal gateway. So the coastal gateway purely becomes that place to to load and offload ships and all that other work that that comes in around processing that cargo moves inland uh, where it can be done more efficiently and more cost effectively. Jack, I think that I've heard in the past is there've been quite a few conversations in Salt Lake that I've attended lately on this topic. I think that 
technology is not a huge component yet of port infrastructure. Is that is that a fair assessment? We have <laughs> we have kind of we have like you know, like you said we have a sandbox still, but we don't we don't have an interconnected sandbox yet. Right. No, you're right, and uh, and that is one of the big black holes in the system, um, and and it's it it seems so illogical, but they truly are black holes. Ports are, 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 are black holes. If, if you're ever down at the port of LA Long Beach, try to get a decent cell phone signal. Um, and, and you can't. Um, so you can imagine how hard it is to, uh, get any kind of data input about where your, where your container is, uh, how goods are moving to and through the port, uh, any of that type of thing. And so that's one of the, one of the, uh, issues that we're attacking here in Utah is not only do we provide this backland processing capacity for in support of those coastal gateway ports, but we're doing so in a way where we're in effectively we're lighting up this area. Um, we're building a 5G LTE network uh, where we will be able to capture the data around what container is where, uh, what truck is pulling that container, what chassis is that container sitting on, and the cargo owner can know at every turn where their cargo is, how it's moved and, and where it's headed and can, can use that data in an actionable way. Uh, that's something that just simply does not exist today. Uh, there's a latency to the data that's in the system today. And that latency makes it hard to act on that data. It makes it hard to do any predictive analysis. It makes it hard to redirect or reconfigure your cargo. Um, it's just too late in the game by the time you get a view to where your cargo is. So we think that the proper role for ports is to build the infrastructure that allows companies to move their cargo how they choose to move their cargo. And if they want to know where their cargo is, and most of them do, uh, or a shipper wants to know where their assets are, and most of them do, then we've got to build the infrastructure to help them do that. And that's where our network comes in. It's really lighting up that black hole that a typically a port a port is. There's just no visibility to that kind of stuff. So are there any kind of cool technologies you've heard about that are being applied or will be applied? I'm, I'm, I guess a lot of us are tech geeks now since we've been living with tech most of our lives. But is there anything interesting where you said, you know, this is this is kind of new and innovative that, that hasn't really been applied to ports in the past? Yeah, I think there's a I think there's a big convergence right now happening in terms of this this access to data, um, zero emissions tech and autonomous vehicles and, and automation. And there's an interesting convergence happening in all three of those spaces. And ports are a perfect place to, to test that tech and prove that tech and sort of turn ports into almost laboratories for, for doing that. Um, and so you know, one of the things that we're doing in, in, in that space is working with uh, a group uh, out of the out of uh, Utah State University called Aspire, and it's actually a consortium of major universities around the U.S. that is being led by Utah State University, and the Aspire Center is all around looking at alternative ways to charge vehicles so that you don't have the downtime and the lag time of plugging them into a pedestal 
they can charge as they as they roll down the highways or as they get to an intersection or or, or over a, a specified pad area so that they can move more efficiently and more effectively and you don't have that big downtime lag of, of trying to charge them at a pedestal. Marry that with autonomous vehicles that you can direct to those locations and and the visibility of those vehicles with their with GPS sensors and a camera-based system on your in and around your port, and you can be reporting where that vehicle is at any one time. Now a a shipper, you know, could say, Oh, I want that. I decided I want that box of tennis shoes to go to point B instead of to point A and can control the vehicle and make it go there, all the while keeping it charged, all the while keeping it at, you know not putting any emissions into the, into the atmosphere or controlling when it, when it leaves and, and arrives so that it deconflicts with traffic and doesn't cause a lot of traffic problems. There's some cool stuff like that, that that's actually being studied and a, a place like the Inland Port Authority is going to be a test bed for that kind of thing. I think there's, I think that stuff's pretty cool. Sounds great. Now, a lot of people who are listening to this probably don't know that Utah has been one of the leading economies in all the states in the last couple of years. So I'm curious, as you coming from away, I also didn't grow up here. I came back for work. Tell me a little bit about what Utah is doing well and ultimately why you decided to come and be a part of it. Well, I think Utah uniquely, uh, because of its culture, takes a very forward look at things and thinks about things generationally. Um, they don't. I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about kind of a short-term win or, or a short-term gain. Uh, they thin, They tend to think longer term. I think that has made a big difference uh, in this state. I think they they've thought for generations about what are they doing and and what are the long-term benefits and impacts of that? Uh, and I think that's fairly unique uh, in the United States. It, um, it's, really, it's really gratifying to be somewhere that does take a long-term view and does think about not just next quarter or next year, but next decade. Um, and that's, that was one of the things that was, that was interesting about coming here. That's why they created an inland port an inland port authority. And it was, was understanding that the movement of goods to and through Utah was a big part of the Utah economy. It represents about a third of Utah's GET logistics. So thinking about, well, what do we need to do to make sure that not only does that grow from an e- and create economic opportunities, so from an economic development standpoint, but how do we grow it in a way that's sustainable in the future, that, that, m- that really was forward looking about how do we mitigate the the negative impacts of goods movement? How do we, how do we think about the impacts on our neighborhoods? What, what kind of job creation do we need to have really taking that long-term view of things is really unique here. And I think that's, that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, the very business friendly climate, very, uh, business friendly, uh, you know, tax, uh, regimes, regulatory regimes, but a lot of states have that kind of thing, right? That's kind of some blocking and tackling stuff. And a lot of states do that. What's different about Utah, and I think what the secret sauce is, is that sort of long-term view of things. Um, how is that going to, how's it going to benefit us um, two or three generations down the road? Jack, I'm curious about the 
the flows that are well let me let me put it this way um for for the goods that are being uh that that are passing through the inland port in Utah um where are they coming from i mean are you seeing um a, a lot of la uh inbound um goods uh further up the uh the coast is, is there i mean might be a, a dumb question but is there are there goods coming across the land border then that that go to that go to utah for for processing i'm curious as to as to the markets that are that are being served and related to that once uh processing is is completed um obviously a lot i, I imagine a, a lot of the goods that are that are processed there are are Utah bound, but I'm wondering if if some of them are, are going to to other neighboring states. I'm just curious as to how the inland port fits into the overall trade picture. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question and a really good point. So, you know, most of the goods that come into into Salt Lake City and come into Utah are coming in that are imported goods are coming in via the LA Long Beach Port Complex, and because of the way that system has grown up. Uh, about 90% of the goods that come into our cargo shed that we consume here in this market come in here by truck. There is a lot of rail capacity between the ports that is underutilized. So that's one of the, you know, one of the big shifts that we want to, that we're trying to make because of the efficiencies and because of some of the opportunity gains that that gives us is to shift some of that cargo from truck to rail and bring that in here and transload that cargo here. And the ability to transload that cargo and, and has, has some big economic impacts for us. By transloading that cargo here, bringing it here in what's called intact, and having that international box, that ocean-going container here in Salt Lake City, available to be reloaded, has big opportunistic upside for us and the entire region. Agricultural products can be put into that. Manufactured goods can be put into that and then put back on the train or put back on a truck and sent right back to the coast to be loaded on a vessel. Today, those goods tend to move through here by truck, being trucked all the way back to the coast. And then they try to match to a, a, a box, a container back at the coast. And that's really hard to do and a lot harder to do than, than one would think. So there's a big upside in trying to make that, that modal shift here in Utah. The cargo that comes to Utah, too, is not just what we're consuming in Utah. It is the Renner Mountain region. Our cargo shed is basically extends east to about Denver, north to Boise, south to, you know, Vegas and, and Phoenix, and west over to Reno, Sacramento. We, we actually serve a massive geographic area from the Salt Lake City area. So being able to move cargo into and out of this area more efficiently and effectively affects a lot of people. Those areas, too, are also where those exports come from. So being able to handle those exports more efficiently, it, 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 it just makes the whole economy of this region function much more efficiently and much more effectively and, and gives us better access to market than we have currently. Jack, is there 
an air component to all this. Um, what, what I mean by that is, is this strictly, um, is does the inland port deal exclusively with with goods that are being transported by truck and and rail, or is there also uh, an element of uh, air cargo in it? Um, for for example, cargo that's that's flown to to the uh, to the airport in Salt Lake, for example, would would that find its way to the inland port, or is that something that would pretty much be be taken care of at the at the airport? Yeah, no, there's a there is a, an, a very important air cargo component to this, and it air cargo oftentimes goes to the value of the goods being shipped, right, or the critical nature of the goods being shipped. So, if so, for example, there are aircraft parts and uh, uh, and biomedical device parts that are assembled and built here in 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 this in Salt Lake City. Some of those component pieces come in containers on a ship via LA Long Beach. But some of those pieces, um, computer chips and, and, and other things that become integrated in and part of that component are flown in. So the ability to marry those two things up here uh, in, in the warehouse or in the manufacturing facility here locally uh, by handling both those types of cargo is a really important aspect. And it's one of the, one of the legs, on, it's, it's kind of the third leg on the stool of truck, rail, and air. Uh, for getting cargo in here so we really can divide, drive a, a really robust sort of manufacturing economy here that I don't think people really uh, understand just how important a component of our economy that is. Jack, are there other inland states that are going to be replicating what Utah is doing? Are you being territorial or is this something that you're you're freely offering uh, input or offering, you know, here's our business model. This is what we've done. Help alleviate the, the congestion on the ports everywhere. How's it going? Yeah. Well, it's something that we're, you know, we, we certainly are working with the, the, the federal government, uh, the Federal Maritime Commission, Department of Commerce, uh, Department of Transportation and others about what we're doing here in Utah and how it can be used and replicated in other places around the country. Um, I, to be honest, the eastern U.S. Um, has is, 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 is light years ahead of the western U.S. in terms of doing things like this. I mentioned earlier South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, um, Ohio. Uh, Kentucky, they've been doing this kind of thing now for quite a while in terms of moving those goods through those ports and using inland ports more efficiently and effectively than we have here in the West. Um, in the West, in the Western states, we're working very actively with folks up in Pocatello uh, to 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 sort of share information and share cargo back and forth between uh, Salt Lake City and and, and Pocatello, Idaho. Uh, we're working with with Reno and Nevada uh, on on uh, how we better move cargo through Nevada between Salt Lake City and the Port of Oakland, Salt Lake City and the Port of LA and Long Beach uh, to move goods through there more more efficiently that, to the benefit of all of us. So there's a lot of collaboration and cooperation, but um, I think to a large degree though we have a very unique position given that we're about the same distance by road or rail from LA Long Beach, Oakland, and Seattle Tacoma. We're about 800 miles inland with those direct road and rail connections to all three of those gateways. No other place really has that. So for a shipper who has a lot of goods coming into the US and a lot of goods coming in through multiple ports, working here in Utah gives them an opportunity to 
to consolidate their goods and work their goods here that frankly no no place else can really replicate not even back east well jack it's it's been a, a fascinating conversation i really appreciate the chance to to talk to someone who actually knows a lot about a topic that is of interest to me um and, and you know that 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 is something that that we do get to do on a on a somewhat regular basis um but still the the appreciation is there really learned a lot and I'm encouraged to see that we are really moving in this in this general direction. As a as someone who does a lot of of customs work, um, there there are of course frustrations with the, uh, the the speed at which things are taking place, and obviously we the 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 delays with shipping itself are are something we feel less directly because th- through our clients, but. Obviously, the the entire infrastructure, right, is 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 impacted, and that that does end up having a, a direct impact. We have to wait longer for, um, for for CBP to to get back to us and things. Uh, different adjudications are taking longer, right? So it's just it's just encouraging overall to see these uh, these movements in a in a positive direction. And I I think you you mentioned this. Um, focus on on looking ahead that that you have in Utah and that's great I, I think that's something we need more of frankly in the country uh, the ability to to look ahead not just at, at, at what's immediately in front of us and to to have some some vision including for improvements that might not benefit us directly right that, that it may be the, the the beneficiaries will be future generations but if the generations of the past hadn't done that for us, right? Uh, where, where would we be today? So on that note, thank you once again. But before we, we wrap up, uh, I'd like to ask you for any recommendations that you might have for us and our listeners today. Well, I think uh, I appreciate that, Fred. Thank you very much. And I, I, I think that uh, you, you, you've hit it uh, the right the right tone. It is about thinking about the future and thinking about, you know, how do we do things better uh, than we've done them in the past? This is not a time to, to say, well, this is how we've always done it. It's a time to say, you know, how can we do things better? How can we do things t- differently? Um, and so I think a recommendation I would leave with, with you and, and your listeners is think about how you do things differently. Think about how we can change what we've done and do it differently uh, and do it better. And um, don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to challenge the status quo. Thank you, Jack. That's a, that's an excellent recommendation. And I like, I like the fact that that is literally one of those uh, very few recommendations that anyone can, can follow, right? It doesn't, much of what we recommend on the, on the podcast uh, is a book and there are people who, well, you know, don't, don't really like the, the traditional book format. Uh, we'll, we'll sometimes recommend uh, articles that might be too technical for for some people, but that is definitely something that, that we can all we can all do um, at the workplace, at home, uh, with with our own personal lives, right? So, th- so thank you for that, um, Jonathan. What about you? What do you have for us? I've been delving into the world of Web3 quite a bit, and so I'm sharing an article about some Manchester United legends who are creating the world's first soccer DAO. 
Now, there's a lot of words packed in there that you might not understand, but think about it this way. They want to create, It's think of a DAO as, in this instance, as an investment group, right? They want to form a global investment group that focuses on investing in assets relating to professional soccer. And so uh, the kind of opportunities, especially in professional sports leagues that are only available to accredited investors, and even then it's a select network of accredited investors who really can invest because you have to know somebody to be able to get in on the ground level when a new sports team is is being formed or when when one is being sold you know these go these go for billions of dollars of course so if you're the kind of person who really has interest in that then part of this blockchain revolution is being able to participate as a lay person in whatever format you want to as an owner in one of these decentralized autonomous organizations that's going to be investing in different projects all around the world. So I highly recommend the article. We'll drop the the link into our blog post, Manchester United Legends Create World's First Soccer DAO. Fred, what do you have for us? Well, Jonathan, I'm looking forward to to, to reading that, that your recommendation, not just because I, I'm interested in, in soccer and uh, on, on Web3, but specifically one of the issues right now in, in the world of soccer is how do how do teams navigate the um, the, the financial landscape right you have you have um, certain teams that have been bought up over the years by um, essentially state actors um, many of them from the Middle East uh, with very deep pockets and then there are teams that uh, either don't want to follow that that path or, or can't for for legal reasons or or because they're the way they are structured uh, does not allow them to do it so I'm as I as I listened to to you describe what's happening I immediately thought of, of the potential there for for certain teams and their their fans to um, to, to have that positive impact on 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 their team and their uh, their performance. So I look forward to that. My my recommendation uh, today, a uh, relatively short one. Um, I've recommended uh, Sam Harris's podcast before. So, but he um, recently had a uh, an Ask Me Anything session, um, and the first question that he answered. So I, I think the answer took about. 10, 15 minutes. So this is a relatively short read. First question was about um, COVID and the pandemic and the, the, the lockdown measures and all of that. And he basically offered what I thought was a very, um, uh, just a great summary of, of, of what I think should be the, the mindset as we, as we move ahead. And he, he did a very good job of balancing the, the, the very legitimate, of course, public health concerns that are still outstanding, while at the same time explaining very clearly why why we need to to start moving toward a more um, open, more uh, to, to better to, simply to, to to manage risks, right? Rather rather than trying to to completely isolate ourselves from from what's happening, right? To to, to basically start getting out there and and getting on with things as normal and he he just managed to to, to strike the right uh balance in in because honestly some so many of the conversations these days about covid are are so strident and 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 partial so it was just great to hear this this very um 
very reasonable, balanced take. And again, it's 10 to 15 minutes. So I would, I would suggest that, um, you know, uh, make, make the time if, if, if this is something of interest. So this is the, uh, ask me anything number 19. Um, and you can find that at the Sam Harris, uh, website or on the same podcatcher where you, where you listen to us. So with that, um, thank you, Jack, for, for joining us today. Uh, really enjoy the conversation and uh, we hope we can we can talk again in the future to see what's happening with uh, the inland port and just discuss uh, uh, trade topics more more broadly and, and and developments that may have occurred by then. Well, thank you both very much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your and your listeners and uh, look forward to having a follow-up conversation with you soon. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.